everyone, and welcome back to Let's Unpack That, where this politically engaged queer millennial unpacks world events through the lens of anxiety, depression, and everything in between. And my God, this is our last episode before the November 2020 election. So we wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, We've been talking a lot about um, how to get active, how to stay active, how to make sure that Joe Biden wins, how to make sure that we flip the Senate, how to make sure that we keep the House. Um, And those episodes have been really fun. And we're still going to do a little bit of that tonight. But um, one thing that we want to do a little bit differently is that we also want to talk about spooky season. (laughs) And it is the spookiest of spooky seasons because not only... Is it Halloween of 2020? Halloween is also three days before the election. But we've been talking a lot about that. We also want to make this episode a little bit fun because I think all of us could use just a tiny, tiny bit of relief before we leave it all out in the field for election day. So um, in this episode, we have Erica, we have Andrew back with us, and we have a new friend, uh, Sabrina Shake. So super excited to have Sabrina on with us. She's a Democratic voter in Texas. So uh, very interesting, some of the things that she's been seeing throughout the course of this election. Um, And thankfully for the rest of you all who are listening, we don't have Kirk with us, which is just so great. (laughs) So Kirk, unfortunately, um, had a couple things uh, to do tonight. He's a busy gal, you know, living the life, the Anne Hathaway lifestyle in Philadelphia, just doing everything that he can to just be an absolute legend, icon, star, and queen. But he did want you all to know that he filled out his mail-in ballot and he put his mail-in ballot inside the secrecy envelope so his ballot is not naked. But we again, like I said, we have a full episode. So we are talking um, spooky season. We are getting to know Sabrina. And then we will wrap up with the final action items that you will take this election season. So with that, I would like to say welcome back, Erica. Welcome back, Andrew. Hi, good to be back. Hey, I'm so excited. Happy spooky season, Erica. This is your podcast. I know. I have my spooky cat with me, who's always spooky because she's pure evil. Get the fuck down, bitch. (laughs) Um, I'm so excited. I love Halloween. And I'm just gonna give everyone a brief story why. Uh, my parents are Southern Baptists, and I grew up thinking Halloween was the devil's birthday. And <laughs> like how Christmas is Jesus' birthday. Well, that's what I thought Halloween was. And now that I am an adult and a human being who does not live under the rule of their parents, even though my mom is like blowing up my spot right now, this is my time to thrive as a spooky hoe. I'm so excited. I know that you've been wanting to do this for at least a year and a half, and I have continuously said no. So like all good white gay people with anxiety issues, um, I gave into peer pressure um, and super excited to have um, our spooky season. So Andrew, um, welcome back, you dumb fuck. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, blame my job. I was working like crazy last week and this week too, but this is the final episode before maybe the most important election of well definitely of my lifetime but maybe of the country so had to do it to him straight and thank you so much for editing our episodes as you always do so super excited to have the both of you here and also introduce everyone to sabrina um so sabrina hi how are you how's it going welcome to the pod hi thank you thank you i am so excited to be here 
Well, I can't wait to talk about spooky Halloween, but also really spooky uh, politics. <laughs> this, is, this is unpacking spooky politics. That might yeah. be a better name for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is really scaring the shit out of me is November 3rd. <laughs> okay so i guess just what we like to do here and the let's unpack that fam we like to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to introduce themselves to our listeners um to people who might not know you um i think it sometimes gives a perspective into you maybe some anxiety you have where you come from um so sabrina we wanted to ask you just before kind of we get started a few questions about you and your political beliefs so um obviously you and i have kikied about politics for a long time but I would just love to talk to you about uh, when did you first become passionate about politics? Like when was it kind of a triggering point for you? I know your personal views on a couple of the candidates, but um, you know, <laughs> when did you first become passionate about politics? Yeah, I think um, my passion probably started when I was really young, uh, although I probably didn't identify it as politics, but more or less just questioning the way that the world worked. Um, so to background about me, so my father is from Pakistan and he came to the United States when he was 18. Um, my mom is second generation American who's born in Chicago and we grew up in Texas. Um, my father, you know, married my mom, he lived in Chicago, came down to Texas and we were all born and raised here. I think that my influence into politics really kind of was from the get, just my dad was extremely into, um, people in general. He was extremely religious. Uh, you know, I was raised Muslim and Texas is one of those places that is sort of a melting pot, especially where I grew up. So there's all different kinds of people from all different walks of life, um, in really urban areas in Texas. So it's probably a little bit different than what people think of in terms of, um, like stereotypical Texas, um, rural areas. So, I think my passion really stemmed from um, hearing about it all the time. I constantly heard NPR every single time I was in the car. Um, and it was just something that was in, embedded in me from the very beginning. But I would say that I, I was passionate about it. I was questioning things. And then as I got older, um, I kind of felt disinterested in it just because you, you sort of learn how much corruption goes into politics and you're like, what the hell is the point? And then, and then you become an adult and you're like, okay, this is really important. You need to, you need to start engaging and um, having a voice. Well, that's interesting. Was part of your engagement just because you lived in Texas and because it was like a pretty Republican state for a while while you lived there? No, I would say the opposite, actually. I think because I lived in Texas, it sort of hindered my engagement just because it was so opposite from people's views that I grew up around. Um, so it felt a little bit like, I don't know, scary to speak out in some ways. Uh, scary because I felt like I wouldn't relate to a lot of people who I was speaking to. And so when you feel like you're not going to relate to whoever you're speaking to, you just sort of want to hold back and engage, right? So that, I think it was probably the opposite um, of growing up in Texas. But I think it was more or less traveling too at a young age. We traveled internationally. Like I went to Box Zone for the first time when I was in fourth grade. And I think seeing that and seeing my family, seeing the way people lived, um, abroad just really opened up my eyes to the differences of what I have here versus what my family had there. Um, and just really questioning what is, you know, what is the reason why this happened? So I started doing that really young, I'd say, and then learning more. Um, and then when I was an adult, I majored in political science in college, um, was interested in law 
I was a uh, paralegal for immigration law for like five years. And then I was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore because as much as you think being a lawyer is about helping people, sometimes it's really not. And it's just a, it's just a drag. That's interesting. I didn't, I don't think that I knew that about you like fully. Is that, is that where you kind of stumbled upon like your love of more progressive politics? Like I, I know who you supported in the primary, but of course you can, yeah. you can share that too. I know you're, a, you're a proud stan of the candidate. So. Yeah. I'm a huge Bernie supporter. Um, love me some Bernie. And I, I think, you know, the reason, the reason why I love Bernie so much is one, I, one of my biggest policies is just getting money out of politics. That's my number one. I just want money to be eviscerated from politics. I don't want to allow large packs to donate to political candidates anymore. Um, and Bernie being a senator for such a long time, he has literally just been consistent in his views. You can go back to his voting behavior and there's maybe only a couple that I would disagree with. Um, but also just because he doesn't accept money from corporations. And that's a huge win, I think, in in my opinion. So it, it just, it's more or less it, you go into it with the with knowing that who else are they accountable to other than the people that they represent, not corporations. Yeah, that's cool. Sabrina, have you always identified as a progressive or liberal? You talked about, you know, your history of being involved or interested in politics from a young age, but, you know, have you always sort of had that bent to your politics? Uh, yeah, for sure. I think I've always been liberal. Uh, and then as I've gotten older and really in the last, I would say maybe five years, I've gotten just more left. I've just gotten more progressive as I've gotten older. And, um, for me, it's really just about policies. Now, the way I see it at this point is just, if I could, I would prefer to just vote based on policies. I want to see a ballot that has X number of policies and I just want to check them down the list and say, this is what I want. And whichever candidate is like, we don't know who that, who they represent. We just, you know, that's, that's who becomes president is whoever um, fills those political ideologies. So yeah, I think, you know, key things for me that are really important. Healthcare is definitely number one. Um, Pre-existing conditions is extremely important. I have a family member who was diagnosed at a really young age um, with pulmonary cardiopulmonary hypertension. And so she's on oxygen, my little sister, since, um, let's see, I was 18. She was 12. And, you know, my mom at the time was, um, and still is actually worked at a bank as a bank teller. And that has just been such a turning point because, um, the entire conversation since that happened has always been, if my mom's wanted to leave her job, well, no healthcare is going to accept my little sisters, uh, with her condition. So, that's something that has always been extremely important to me. Um, other policies that are just like at the forefront is lower military spending. I want to get rid of privatized prisons. Um, you know, I want to end the wars and get out of them, legalizing marijuana and the drug war. So basically, who, whichever candidate comes closest to my policies is where I lean. It doesn't really matter where they come from. I just want to know that that's what they're going to represent. It's kind of interesting because I, I always find... And, and, and maybe this is just something different about Northeastern politics versus Southern politics or just kind of the way you view it versus the way I view it. I, I so look at the candidate first, you know, which is I find that so interesting that you look at the policies first. Like I want to look at somebody who inspires me, who feels like that hero character, even though we know that so many politicians are not heroes. You mm. know, like I think that there are certainly politicians that have been heroic and have done heroic things. But I don't know that I would say that any of them are, are you know, innately heroes, especially at the time that they're they're running like parts of campaigns. So that's interesting that you would kind of start with the policy and then figure it out versus like for me, I'm like, 
oh, who excites me? Who like brings me to the energy? And like, who is like making me feel like I want to vote for them? And then I make concessions on their policies. How did you determine that you thought that way? Or is it, did you not even think about it that way? Like you're just more principled maybe versus I love the drama of the character. I think it's I think it's because I'm cynical. I think I'm cynical and I, I don't trust that when they get into office, they're going to do what they say that they're going to do. And so, you know, all the platitudes of, so here's the thing, I guess we're living in completely different times at this point, right? Like at this point with COVID, um, with race relations in the US, I want the platitudes. I want someone to say like, we're all in this together, you know, and really unite us. Um, but before before all of that and before Trump, I really wouldn't have cared about, you know, how well they can give a speech and how amazing they are at speaking. Or, I mean, honestly, even family values, it wouldn't matter to me if they were married, any of that. I just, yeah, it's it's more or less what they're going to do once they're in office and and bigger than that, who they're beholden to once they're there. Because I think that, that it changes everything, right? Like who, they're, who makes them accountable is is what determines how they make decisions. Yeah, I agree. As we said before the call, I have a lot of Southern family um, and my, my family is very left-leaning, which is, you know, common considering the fact that, surprise, I am Black. But um, what's it like being kind of the Democrat in the room in Texas? I know you're not necessarily in, like, a Lubbock or a Corpus Christi, but you're still mm-hmm. in Texas. So what's it like being blue in a red state? Yeah, you know, and I would love to hear what you guys what your experience has been like um, growing up in in Pennsylvania and also what you think about in terms of like an outsider's perspective of what Texas is like. I mean, I'll give, so for me, I I think I've had sort of a mixed experience. Um, It is, it's one of those things that Texas is kind of hard to generalize just because where I live now, I live in Fort Worth. um, It is, you know, it's not a big city, but it's still a pretty big city comparatively to other cities or rural um, areas in Texas. Uh, so there's, I wouldn't say there's diversity in Fort Worth, but at least in diversity of thought, um, I am actually surprised, like as I go out in my neighborhood, it's probably two to one for it. Like every two Trump signs I see, I see one Biden sign, which is sort of surprising. And where I grew up in Arlington was incredibly diverse, actually. I think like the high school I went to um, was probably about 35% Black and maybe 25% Hispanic. And then the next one was Asian and then it was white. So it was just a huge mix of everyone. And Arlington is, is sort of like that too. It's a really big melting pot where I grew up. Um, my background being Pakistani, there's a really large population there of Pakistanis and Desis, like people from India and Pakistan. So it's been interesting. Um, I also, I went to school when I went to college at SMU, it's a very conservative college, extremely conservative, and it's like right in the heart of Dallas. That I think was the biggest shock of my life because I just wasn't expecting it. It's literally 30 minutes from Arlington and it's like night and day, um, just in terms of of wealth, number one, but also um, just ideology too. It's just very, very different. So studying political science there, um, relating to people there was very difficult, I think. You know, the program was great. The school was was good, of course. Um, But yeah, I I didn't really relate to a lot of people there. So that was kind of shocking. What I find in Texas is if you're from Texas and you're conservative, you just sort of easily meet people and connect with them. Um, And if you're outside of that circle, you just don't really talk much about your political views. Like people just kind of keep to themselves. 
That's interesting because I think like like you mentioned, what do we think about Texas? Like yeah. we do get a stereotype presented to us, you know, like it's in our media, it's in the news, like like every especially because like most major media companies are based in New York. So sometimes the perspective of the news that we get is through a New Yorker lens. So like there's probably no place more different than what we think is stereotypical Texas than is stereotypical New York. You know, like those kind of, those, those two groups of people would seem like polar opposites. So we don't get to hear necessarily about diverse stories in Texas. So like, it's interesting that you would say that you grew up in a, in such like a, a diverse community because the image that we get, the one that's been drilled into our brains as, you know, the cowboys driving in pickup trucks with Trump flags on the back, shooting a gun into the air at a rally. That does exist. (laughs) Yeah. Of course they exist. Of course they exist. But it's like, it's like that. Yeah. That's almost taught that it's like our norm of what Texas is like. But I was talking to one of my other friends from Texas. She's on the, the Gulf side, like closer to the border. I forget what the name of her town is. And um, she mentioned that like, no, you think that like the Trump people are the only ones with the pickup trucks and the flags. There's Biden people that have the Biden flag and the pickup trucks and they have truck rallies and they blast music. And she's like, it, they're not as big, of course, um, but there is still that kind of cowboy style community that more modernized cowboy i guess you would say of people who that's just sort of the way that they express themselves and that was something that was really interesting to me because it was something that like i did not expect and i had never heard about texas because texas feels so far from like where i am but even when i talk to you like you only have an accent at certain times, like when you turn it off and turn it on. So even that piece, you know, is is something that that I find so so different, kind of compared to the stories that we've been told. So to answer one of your like questions that you had, I feel like I'm almost the exact same, but also different, like almost the exact opposite at the same time, in the sense that I grew up in San Diego, which is a purple city, but it's really turning into a reddish city. Um, in a state that everyone assumes is blue throughout. But I grew up with absolutely no diversity in my high school. I could get all the Black people counted on two hands in my high school. But, you know, I think everyone has this assumption that because you're within the state that everyone acts a certain way. I'm sure everyone thinks that San Diegans are like these long hair, surfing, like shock bra, like very liberal type people and there are people who look like you would see them walking down the street and you'd be like oh I know who they voted for and then you look at it and they have a long history of voting red um so it's hard I do think no shade to the east coast I do think that they have a very limited perspective on politics sometimes and it's because they really only know what they see on the media, right? Like, I think media drives everyone's opinions on everything. Um, And so, you know, it's hard to just say like, oh, I was the oddball out because I wasn't. But um, in other instances, I absolutely was. And I think also the intention behind politics can change. Um, Whereas like people in Texas have very different concerns than people who live on the coast. Um, And so wherever politics aligns with that, you know, those concerns, I think does make the difference. 
I wish I was as good as you, Sabrina, where like I look at policies over politicians and I've only voted. I only like I, the first time I could vote in a presidential election was 2016. So like, I love telling white people, like I never voted for Obama. <laughs> Mind blown. It's just because I wasn't old enough, but <laughs> um, you know, I think when I look at a politician, I'm like, Oh, they're a good person. They're a bad person, but I'm not affected as much by, you know, policies around oil, where that is a thing in Texas, or even, um, you know, policies concerning the environment. Like, yes, they do matter to me, but they don't directly impact me. You know, I think politics looks so different across the country. And what it means to be blue in Texas is very different than what it means to be blue in California or blue in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's very, very true. And I bet what something that we probably have a lot in common is probably immigration policies, right? In Texas, that's one thing that's important on either side, whether you're blue or red in Texas, um, immigration policies are just very, very important. Um, And I know that that's something similar to either Democrats or Republicans in California as well. There is a lot of growth in Texas happening, which is looking really positive in terms of turning more liberal. So, I think, let's see, I think I I wrote this down. Texas has voted for a Republican in every election since 1980. Um, But Trump, and this kind of surprised me, won Texas by less than 9% in 2016. And that's surprising because I think that there was a lot of um, dislike for Hillary, right? It was very different Mm -hmm. um, previously when Obama was running. So I don't know, less than 9% seemed a lot closer than I thought it would be in Texas in 2016. What they call the Texas Triangle, which is Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, San Antonio contains about 84% of the growth since 2010. Um, and that predominantly is people migrating to Texas from other states. And so that's really kind of outnumbering the amount of rural areas that we have in terms of population growth. So hopefully that sort of growth will really, you'll see a big spike in um, turning certain areas of Texas more blue than it already is. And that's like one thing that I find so interesting because people are sort of assuming that Pennsylvania is growing more red. So we're having the opposite effect Mm. because we voted for Democrats for so long and then we voted for Donald Trump. I mean, I think there's a huge, there was a huge anti-Hillary coalition built in Pennsylvania and we're always such an important state. Like, so again, was it the candidate or was it the actual trend of what's happening in the state? I think it kind of has to be both because the state still went red, which is the opposite of how it's went for so long, despite always being so competitive. Like, and I think it's, it's interesting, like, like all of these polls and all of these things, like we're, we're coming right up on election day and like everybody's trying to predict where Texas is going to fall, where Pennsylvania is going to fall, where North Carolina is going to fall, you know, uh, where Michigan, Wisconsin, um, where they're all kind of going to land, Arizona, all of these states, like they have things in, in common, despite the fact that like they they are so geographically different. Like there's just things that like make them similar in terms of like what their politics and what their views are. Like they're very, these states are very representative of the United States, like being pulled into culture wars, like either way, which I kind of find fascinating. Um, you know, again, I'm not a, a polling expert or a political science person at all. I just kind of like to to read that stuff. And, and I just find it interesting that like, 
we do think that our states are so different. But when you look at the political breakdown, again, policy aside, the actual political breakdown of where people vote by party, like they look pretty similar, which is weird you know, to, to think of. So I agree with that. I think there's a lot of similarity between Texas and Pennsylvania. My experience with Texas has only been traveling for work. So I'm going to Dallas and Fort Worth, and it is a more metropolitan, progressive, liberal-leaning area. I don't have any experience with um, rural Texas. I mean, I've, I've been to Austin, and you know that's a mixed bag of a lot of different views and ideas, but probably predominantly blue voters. Um, but where I grew up in Pennsylvania, I mean, there's there's a farm right next to my parents' house and there's farms all around where they are. And where I live now in Pennsylvania, I mean, there's a lot of jacked up trucks with Confederate flags, which is mind-blowing to see north of the Mason-Dixon line. But that's the situation here. And my brother lives out in the central part of the state and works on the uh, gas pads so there is a lot of that same sort of thing happening in Pennsylvania where there's this oil and gas industry and there's a lot of rural areas, uh, rural Pennsylvania, even where I live was hit very hard by the opioid crisis and things have gotten better. I mean, when we first moved here, we used to take the dog for a walk and we regularly find needles on the sidewalk as we walked around. So those sorts of problems are here too. And I, I feel like where I live and my experience is very similar to what people, what blue leaning voters think of when they think of Texas, but it's here mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And that's why these states are battleground states because there is that crazy mix. I mean, you go 30 minutes to the south of where I live and you're in a territory that probably voted entirely for Hillary, but where I am, it's just not that case. And that I find that so interesting because I think that like so many of the people who do listen to this podcast are like, how do I have conversations with those people? How do I have conversations with the people who live 15 minutes away that are in these like Trump hotspots? And, you know, how do I have conversations, you know, with somebody in the city who may not be super engaged in politics, but it's directly going to affect their life or even something as not necessarily simple, but something as much of a rally and cry as defunding the police that these people who live in this liberal city of Philadelphia don't understand how the police get elected and how the police get funded. So like everybody's trying to have these conversations with people and everybody's been trying to reach out, encourage people to vote. But like, I guess, Sabrina, I'm curious in, in Texas, like how are you having conversations with swing voters or people in the middle? Do you see, well, I'm mean, COVID makes it difficult, but have you been talking to them? Like what have your conversations been like, or are you met with more kind of people who are strongly in the kind of Trump category. And that's sort of where your conversations have, have been. Yeah, that's really where my conversations have been. Um, I mean, what I'm finding is when I speak to someone either that I don't know very well or just don't understand where they lean politically, um, they, they typically have made up their mind either way. They just don't want to really talk about it. Right. Like that's kind of consistently been my experience. Um, so, for instance, you guys know now what, you know, the way I feel about um, politics. But, you know, my neighbor literally next door, I can see it waving right now, has a Blue Lives Matter flag on, <laughs> hanging from his house. Um, and like literally across the street, there's a huge Trump Pence sign. So it's it's just 
I, I mean, there's like, I, I don't know, it's hard. I feel what I do is I, I run into either someone who doesn't really want to engage in politics just because they're uncomfortable with it. They just feel like they either feel like they just don't know enough about it because it's, I mean, and you sympathize with that because it's hard, right? There's, there's so much, it's so convoluted. And so you obviously who wants to stress out about something like that? And I think it's, it's that way for a reason, right? Like that's intentional. Where my husband works is probably like 20 miles further West of where I am in Fort Worth. And that is very rural. It's called Weatherford, Texas. And everyone there, they don't even come to Fort Worth, right? Like they don't come to the bigger um, city. They just kind of, they were raised in Weatherford and they, they do everything there. And everyone there leans one way, right? They're all Trump supporters. Uh, and I know my husband is, he's had multiple conversations. He's an immigrant as well. He was born in Pakistan and he came here when he was 16 years old. So uh, we have the same beliefs when it comes to um, politics. So when he's speaking to his employees or anyone that comes into the store and wants to engage, yeah, I mean, there's even an example today, actually, somebody was, someone came to work and they were wearing a Make America Great Again hat. And it's one of his employees. He's like, you can't, you know, you can't do that. I can't have you going out and uh, meeting customers with that on. And he was like, why? It's freedom of speech. And he was like, yeah, but not as you're, an, not when you're an employee. So yeah, it's kind of all over the map. And that's only maybe 15 minutes further west. Um, but it's hard. It's hard. I think that typically the best way to speak to someone who's in the middle or undecided is that you try to engage on a, something that you know has a direct impact on their life. Um, so for me, if I meet someone, it usually has to do with tax policies in Texas. That's a really big issue. Um, you know, the messaging right now about Biden is that his tax policies are going to be, are going to increase across the board. We know that that's not true, right? He's explicitly said that over and over again. If you make less than $400,000 a year, you're not going to get taxed any more than you do right now. Um, but that's huge. And that's huge for a reason because conservatives really do care about stuff like that. And same thing with immigration policies. That's another big one. So it's a really difficult conversation to have. I think it's, I think honestly, finding the right window is the difficult part. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that is, is something I think that's really important that I feel like is not something we've talked about on this podcast, like in such a direct way, like what's important to the people around you. We've talked about what's important to you, make politics personal for you. But I haven't had a ton of success with that. I've tried to make this election personal. And I think that people are innately selfish and they want to look at themselves and what's going to benefit them. I was going to ask, like, Andrew, in, in your conversations, you've had some conversations with some uh, conspiracy theorists. Like, what are what, where do you try to find common ground when you can? Or where do you try to bridge the gap? Because you and I had a similar upbringing in terms of being surrounded by conservative people. Like, what are some of the things that you try to do, especially in the last few days of the election? Like, you might feel it's hopeless, but I'm sure you're still you're still entertaining at least the texts a little bit. Yeah, and I think when you're referring to the conspiracy theorists, you're probably talking about my mother. Um, I mean, she she sent uh, yet another video just a couple days ago to us, and you know, it's a video that was that was quickly taken off of YouTube and other platforms because it's just misinformation. And you know, I I got to be honest, I I don't know if it's right or wrong. It's probably wrong, but it's it's very hard to engage at this point because it's just been over the last year and the pandemic especially um these family members of mine and even some of my friends they've be they've just it, it seems like everybody has whatever side they were leaning to that's the side they're they're dug in on and there's there's you know 
people on the left are not coming out and trying to talk to people on the right and vice versa. And everyone is kind of just dug into their opinion. And it's, it's very difficult to talk to those people. And I try, um, but there's just so much misinformation, um, especially in right wing media where stuff is misconstrued and stuff is taken out of context. And Paul, you and I, like we, we try to read Fox news and these other outlets and, and, you know, stuff like tangle and, and, and see what all the whole media landscape, what it's saying. And from there you can kind of form an opinion and, you know, most of us are not going to fall entirely one way or the other, you know, you're going to fall somewhere in the middle, but I think what's dangerous, especially with my family members, which is my experience with, very conservative people is they only only read conservative news and it's been this shift from the traditional conservative news even farther right where um a year ago it was mostly fox news and you know some other stuff like that and now it has gone to where i'm getting uh links to oan and which is you know in in my opinion isn't even news it's 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 just a propaganda farm. And I think that's where there is that disconnect. I honestly don't know how to bridge it because whatever comes out, whether it's, it's Hunter Biden emails or, you know, even today with the whole thing with Giuliani and uh, the Borat movie and, you know, they're so quick to get an article up onto OAN or whatever other website, uh, the National Review or whatever the other, whatever the, the, fuck the other one is, yeah. the Federalist. Yeah, like they're so fast to put an article up that you know it's not like oh here's evidence why it is. It's just like oh those are those are Hunter Biden's emails because they're absolutely Hunter Biden's emails. It's, it's just that's what we say, and they just buy it. I don't think it's because they're they're stupid. It's just that they have their idea they're already dis- they've already decided they're voting for Trump and it's not about them believing or disbelieving the misinformation that they're reading um you know i'm sure if they were to examine it they would see the logic behind it being wrong but uh they they're just entrenched in that idea so they're not even going to engage well that's what i find you know so interesting like i think you said as we've talked about before is that it, it, i i understand that people get frustrated with the media i also get frustrated with the media on the left hand side you have kind of you know the crooked media is the the new york times you know the daily beast these sort of like really i would say like liberal bubbles of communication they're more sensationalist and they're fear driven, but they're not fear mongering. Like I don't find that they're necessarily like, like, Oh my God, this is going to happen. And you all need to blah, 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 blah. Like I, that's not what I, I, and I still view it as, as factual versus what I think scares me about the far right side of media is that it is literally made up facts and things are misconstrued. Like that's very different than someone reading something that's dramatic and being like, okay, that was a little bit too much. I'm not going to take that as fact versus somebody reading something that is dramatic and is perceived as fact. Like that is really scary to me. And I think Erica, like we've kind of talked about that before a little bit, kind of on this podcast, but also just in terms of like, where are our friends getting our news? I think we specifically talked about this around, you know, the, the, when the Black Lives Matter movement started getting a lot of traction this summer. Like we talked about that in terms of, 
calling out our, our white friends. But in, in your world, it's a little bit different. In the black community, it's a little bit different because they have lower voter turnout rates. So you could have conversations with voters who are completely disengaged in politics or, or there's a higher likelihood um, that they would be completely disengaged in politics. Or you're talking to white people who don't have a clear sense of what the social issues are. So, like, on your side, how are you having some of those conversations, you know, with people in the middle? I mean, it's hard because, you know, I think that it's very difficult because within the community that I belong to, I am almost solely surrounded by educated Black people. Um, And for that reason, most of us tend to be very liberal. Obviously, there's exceptions to that rule, but there's exceptions to every rule. Um, But a lot of it is I've realized that when it comes to news, like I have a group chat with (laughs) me and the my family and the only other black family in our the neighborhood that I grew up with. And um, they're basically family to me. But, you know, those will send all these um you know, articles and we'll send like things on Twitter. And it seems to be a lot of Washington Post, a lot of time. So, you know, you're big, I'd say like your top three or four news outlets. But a lot of the conversations that we have are very much based out of experiences, right? Like the news has never touched us without you know, mentioning how much black blood was spilled. Um, So it's always kind when I have these conversations around politics, um, by virtue of my my family being very Southern, very religious, and in a lot of social aspects, conservative, we relate through stories. And I think that's a very black thing in general. It's definitely a very Southern thing um, where we're storytellers and, if you want to get the point across, it's easier to get it, the point across through a story, through something that's real, through something that we can see or we can hold. Um, so, you know, when it comes to talking politics, I always like, especially around gay marriage, it's a little bit of a hot button topic within my family. You know, I'm not talking about you know, this Supreme Court ruling or this lower court ruling or these like historical examples. I'm like, yeah, my friends, Paul and Jack, they're happy and they are a gay couple. But I look at my friends X and Y and they're absolutely miserable and they're a straight couple. So, you know, it's, you have to make it personal to relate it. Um, and I think that historically black people are always skeptical because again, everything is usually like the things that concern me are framed in a limelight where we're either the like almost like the the completely like like the ultimate victim where like we had our hands bound, we were the perfect person, we did everything right, or we were the villain that became a victim, or we're just the the villain's villain. Um So I think there's a little distrust within the community because we've never been, at least when it comes to the most personal thing, which is how people who look like me are treated. Um, Media is not kind. But I think when it comes to these things like, you know, QAnon and stuff like that, it's like, I don't give a fuck if you think that, you know, 
Bill Clinton and Joe Biden are like eating babies to maintain internal youth. And I don't know if you've seen Bill Clinton or Joe Biden, but like, <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> but um, like, those are the things that have no weight in my life. And I have too many serious things going on. All the people who are so obsessed with these conspiracy theories are just taking this like, or even obsessed with Hunter Biden's emails are the people who quite frankly, are in the position where they don't have much going on in their lives that <laughs> causes a lot of difficulty. I don't care about some white dude doing cocaine and then no longer doing cocaine and getting past that when there are millions of people who look like me who were either arrested, killed, or overdosed during the crack epidemic. So it's just like... I think a lot of these news sources really do not pander to us, um, which makes sense because we're not necessarily, if you look at, you know, education, even though Black education is on the rise, hallelujah, but if you look at it, we're not the ones who are consuming media. And the media is not one to be like, ooh, let me flip that. Like, let's try to reach this audience because they don't necessarily value us as an audience, I would say. So when it comes to those conversations, again, they're just based off of my experiences or the experiences of people I know. Yeah, well, that was such an awesome like reflection from from everybody. I appreciate like the difference in stories. Sabrina, you you sharing yours from you know being in, in Texas and the types of conversations you're having to Andrew dealing with your conspiracy theorist mother to, you know, Erica feeling like maybe, you know, you're even your community is ignored by the media. And, and I think that that's like just something I wanted to kind of close this segment out on. One of the things that frustrates me so much about Donald Trump is the way he tells stories and the way he interacts with the media and the way that he plays the media like a fiddle and they eat it up and they cover the shit out of him because they know they're going to get clicks. They know they're going to get reads. Like one of the most disgusting lies that he perpetuated and, and, and honestly, I, I believe started was um, the idea that that Muslims were dancing in the street during 9-11. Um, and, and that's one of those things that I, I listened to him say that as a, as a kid. And I remember repeating that in my fourth grade class. Like I remember, you know, like saying to people like, well, we, we don't know. We have to bomb uh, Afghanistan because, um, you know, we don't know. Their people could have voted. They're all evil. They wanted to bomb us. They wanted to kill us. It was the men. It was the women. It was the children. It was everyone. Like this was like this kind of like stuff that I learned, whether through the media that I watched or explicitly from the people who raised me. Like that's the stories that I was hearing is that it was the brown person who was bad um, and that they needed to be obliterated. Um, and God, I don't know what the statistic is of all the people that died, the innocent civilians who died in the Afghan and Iraqi wars. But but um, Sabrina, I know that you had experience with that being in school as a yeah. person from that part of the world after 9-11. And so I just kind of I don't know that you would say I blame Donald Trump for this, but I would love no. to just hear your, you know, I'd, I'd love to, to hear kind of your reflections on that. Yeah. So I was a sophomore. Yeah. I was a sophomore in high school when 9-11 happened. Um, and, 
you know, from my outward appearance, you can tell I'm not necessarily brown, brown, right? So I think, especially being in Texas, uh, my first um, initial impression is always Hispanic, usually. Uh, that's what people guess that I am. Because I was raised Muslim and my father was so religious, you know, going to school in the same area ever since I was born, um, everyone kind of knew my background. So, you know, for instance, we didn't really celebrate Christmas. Uh, so if you came back from Christmas break, you don't really share stories about your experience or holidays just because there wasn't that sort of tradition. Um, likewise, you know, when you fast for Ramadan, um, I didn't go into the cafeterias and, and um, you know, like eat. I would go into the library and just like chill. So I think when I was in, by the time I got to high school, a lot of people knew that I was uh, Muslim, but it wasn't a really a thing until 9-11. Like, it, you know, I, I, I didn't feel Although I felt different just because I, I felt like I had a community outside of school and then I had who I was at school and that was very, very different. But in terms of like really feeling isolated, that didn't happen until after 9-11. And so I remember when I was walking down the hall, it must have been like two weeks after it happened. Um, someone just yelled at me, go back to where you came from. And it was shocking. Um, it was just shocking. I, I remember just kind of freezing and not really understanding like it was, it was one of those things where I was like, are you speaking to me? You know, like I've, I was born here, I was raised here. Um, I feel like we're the same. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things that's really kind of stuck with me. But after that, things just got so much worse. I mean, so much worse. You know, I can tell you stories of my husband, even um, where he works in Weatherford. He owns that business in Weatherford. And one of his, his name is Hassan. And one of his employees stopped calling him by his first name. Uh, when customers were in the store. And so they started calling him by his last name, which is Rana. I guess it sounds different than Hussein. So she started calling him by his last name. He was like, you know, why did you switch? Why are you calling me that? And she said, well, I just thought the customers that are coming in here, they would feel more comfortable. And it was, it was shocking because, you know, and I think like he dealt with it way better than I would. Um, I felt like if someone had done that to me, I would just be just sort of like puzzled, like what? But he was like, you know, if, if someone's uncomfortable coming in here because of who I am, that I don't really want them to come in here and that's fine with me, but I still need you to call me by my actual, you know, first name, which you've always called me by. It's just interesting, I guess. Um, there's been a lot of polar opposite experiences that I've had growing up in Texas. You know, I've, I've had the I've had people who, um, like I just said, going to high school who've known me forever and um, granted, this guy didn't really know me. I think he was younger than I was. Um, shout that at me. And that was very different. Um, I've experienced my father going into the airport and being, you know, interviewed for two plus hours because he was on some list that didn't really exist. Um, I don't remember what year that was, probably 2004 or five. So it's been really different. Still, the areas that I grew up in, luckily, still had a large um, immigrant community. And so there's always a lot of people to relate to, right? And so that's kind of what you um, migrate towards and look for. Thank you for for sharing that. I'm sure that it's you know not necessarily easy to talk about, but it is important for yeah people to learn. Like you know, Erica has been very transparent on this podcast about the the issues that she's faced. You know, Andrew and I have talked about how we've perpetuated some of the experiences that both of you guys have faced, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And I, I just think that it's a good reminder of how far we still have to go. And yeah. 
how impactful events like 9-11 can be. Did any of us really know a ton about Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, like any of these places, Iran, you know, until after 9-11? Like, were they on the map in our mind beyond the conflict with the first Bush, um, you know, but were, were these things that we talked about? And then when we talked about them, were we talking about them in the right way? Were our teachers prepared to correct and educate students? You know, no, <laughs> like, like were parents aware of what was going on? Like when you saw someone who was in traditional Muslim dress or traditional Indian dress, like any, anybody who just, wasn't in jeans and a fucking t-shirt. Did we know how to respond to those people? Or did we immediately think as white people, as privileged white people, they're weird, they're different, you know? I have memories of being on the beach and and seeing a, um, a Muslim woman who was fully covered with the exception of her face in the water, you know? And I remember being like, why would she do that? Why not just put on a bathing suit? And being like, she's weird. Like that was my, it was, there was no education for me to lean back on that this is her religion, you know, which I, religion was so important for me growing up. It was so important for my parents to impart on me. Why didn't I ever get to learn about other people's religions and other people's experiences? We forget sometimes how deep these things go and how unprepared we were as a society to handle them. And all of this rhetoric that Trump plays into the Muslim travel ban, the child separation at the border, that zero tolerance policy, you know, like actively trying to, um, you know, forbid uh, transgender people from getting the rights that they need, participating in things like the bathroom bill. All of those things are things that like, each time there's these large events that happen or something, you know, drastic that happens, people have a reaction and it's on us as people, I guess, to pick up the pieces. So if we're not advocating, if we're not talking, if we're not trying to change the conversation and educating ourselves about the conversation, we are complicit in this conversation. And, you know, a lot of people don't like that phrase. Oh, silence is violence. But like, that is literally what happens And silence in terms of if we just don't speak up, but also if we don't educate ourselves, like we become violent, we become complicit in this stuff. So thank you guys for, for kind of sharing those stories and sharing how you're talking to voters. I very much appreciate that. Like that wasn't exactly where we expected this podcast to go, but I'm very grateful that it did. Um, so we're going to take a quick break now. Um, but when we come back, um, we will unpack our favorite things about spooky season. All right, welcome back. It is time for spooky season. We are talking QAnon. We are talking Bohemian Forest or something. We are talking The Federalist. We are talking Breitbart News. Uh, But no, not really. We are talking about something a lot more fun than we have ever talked about. And you may be listening to this and being thinking, Paul, what the fuck? It's a few days before the election. Why aren't you talking about the election? And to you, I say, fuck you. I also say, (laughs) I'm drunk and I want to talk about Halloween. And that's what we're going to do. And... 
Uh, Erica has been up my ass in the way that I don't like for the last two years to talk about spooky season. So we're going to do that. And I would like to preface this by saying we just took an hour long break where we talked about QAnon. So whatever comes out during this section is totally up in the air. So, but what we want to talk about some of our favorite Halloween traditions. We want to talk about how we're celebrating uh, Halloween during COVID, our favorite candies. And then we want to figure out what is Trump doing on Halloween? And what is Biden doing on Halloween? <laughs> and will Jill be dressed as a slutty school teacher? Oh my God. Stay tuned to find out. So Erica, oh. as the Spooky queen, both in personality, face, and uh, interests. Um, (laughs) What are your typical traditions for spooky season? So Halloween, I mentioned it earlier. Halloween and I have a very tumultuous relationship. Um, Growing up, my church held a fall carnival, and it was basically to keep us sweet Christian children from celebrating Halloween. I won a couple pie contests, but no big deal. And um, so in my adulthood, I've decided to turn it the fuck up when it comes to Halloween. Um, Highlights have been a 1920s themed murder mystery party. Um, Lowlights have been uh, the AXP basement freshman year. And um, I think, you know, obviously, considering COVID, I am, I don't love going out, out on Halloween. It's expensive. It's crowded. It's just crazy. But this year during COVID, I will actually be hosting an online murder mystery party. So um, it's a cool opportunity to get together with friends in a way that is safe and COVID friendly, I'm sure there will be a spike in a couple weeks after Halloween related to COVID cases. So, you know, this year I'm going to do the right thing. But overall, I also love horror movies and y'all can say whatever the fuck you want, but I (laughs) go to a different location almost every year and I try to do some ghost hunting. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to, we're going to unpack that in a second. Um, Andrew, what are your typical traditions for spooky season? Um, so, um, <laughs> uh, n- none of you know this about me, but I don't really celebrate Halloween <gasps> at all. <gasps> I, I like this, the, like Paul, you sent me the note about what this episode was going to be about. And I was like, Oh, okay. And then I read the note and I was like, ah, shit. We were talking about this during the break. I grew up in a very conservative very Protestant Presbyterian family. And we did not celebrate Halloween because it was, you know, witches and devils and bad symbolism and all that shit. So I just didn't really grow up with it. Um, We were that family that would like turn our lights off and like, or not even be at home. Like we would, we would go to like my grandparents or something um, so that we wouldn't have to interact with trick or treaters. I guess I just carry that into adulthood and you know, I, I'm not a very, I'm not a person that's very into like things that are silly or campy. I mean, Paul, you know, we talked about this a couple of, of weeks ago where I said, you know, I've never been to like a drag show, but I'd like to go sometime. But you know, I, I, it just doesn't seem like something I would, uh, I would enjoy because it's just not the sort of person I am. 
Um, so I just never got into it as an adult, which is funny because my girlfriend is fully into Halloween. She fucking loves it. She's all about it. It's probably her favorite holiday of the year. Every year she fucking dresses me up in something. Um, <laughs> so I've got a lot of pictures of me reluctantly standing there dressed as something. Um, although I will say probably the highlight for me was the one year that I was Mad Max. Um, I actually did put effort into that and I made a costume and closely followed by I I was the kid from Up and, Russ. and yeah Russ and my girlfriend dressed as the bird from Up so that was fun. And I am gonna drag you for a second. Okay, go for it. What the fuck, dude? Like, here's my thing about Halloween. It is the one night a year where you can do whatever the fuck you want, and if people are like, "Oh, why are you wearing that weird outfit?" You might be like, "Yeah, this is." Like, you could have walked out like, ooh, this is what I wish I could have worn every single day of the year. But you couldn't. But it's Halloween, so you fucking could. So, you know, fuck you for crushing people's hopes and dreams and being anti-Halloween. And I'm grateful that you found someone who fixes all of your faults and shortcomings. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not anti-Halloween. So let me let me jump in here for a second as mediator. You know, I gays do love to insert themselves. So <laughs> here's the thing, Erica. You're going to tell somebody like Andrew, go out, be whatever you want, dress whatever way you want. And all of a sudden he's going to show up as fucking in blackface somewhere. And then we're going to have a larger issue. So we, we have to empower the straight white men, particularly the ones that support this podcast to be measured in their approach to Halloween. I think. (laughs) I didn't even think of that. Oh yeah. Um, Do I have to, do I have to like stop working on my MLK costume now? (laughs) Oh my God. I mean, I'm dressing up as Rudy Giuliani, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, a vampire, that's a traditional costume for Halloween. (laughs) Will your hand be in or out of your pants? Yeah, seriously. Will there be a young girl in front of you? (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be Paul's costume. (laughs) (laughs) I'm dying. <laughs> All right, Sabrina, what about you? What are your uh, typical traditions for spooky season? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, okay, growing up, we did kind of just your average, everybody dressed up. Did y'all do this or is this more of a Southern thing where you take a pillowcase to go trick-or-treating? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, I mean, that's kind of what we did. It was basically go door-to-door trick-or-treating. We all dressed up as something I don't know. Now I do things once in a while. Sometimes I don't. It's just, I don't know. I like decorating. I like Halloween, but if it takes too much effort, I'm out. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Okay. This is the most <laughs> anti-Halloween podcast <laughs> yeah. I've ever been on. Well, my traditions are, I don't have any, but I do <laughs> very much value Halloween. I love the pillowcase going around as trick-or-treating because then after you know you dump out your candy if you don't put it in the wash you know your pillowcase just smells like Reese's for the next three years (laughs) oh what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) and and I just I don't know for me like I I always loved Halloween it was always something we did with friends again standard basic yeah 
But like it, my parent, my mom actually, like when we were kids, she would try to make our costumes. So like my brothers were Ewoks from Star Wars. My mom made skeleton costumes all for us where she hand painted bones on like black sweatshirts. Like she went all out. And like, I felt like it was her way of like, number one, we weren't going to the Halloween store where we had to spend a stupid amount of money on stuff. But also my mom loved doing stuff like costume design. So we always had like some pretty interesting costumes just in the fact that they were like homemade like some of the my favorite memories are that um and i don't know that i have any like traditions now but like last year we did a shit's creek we called it a very shitty halloween and andrew was there erica was there one of the most fun things i loved about that is it was like it was a tv show that was popular in pop culture at the time it was like really becoming a show that was on the rise and i love the idea of doing some type of tv show halloween every year they're like like whether you watch the show or not there's somebody that you can replicate whether you like halloween or not you can come as dressed up or you can come as like really into the theme but you don't feel off theme because you could just be like i don't watch the show but i want to hang out and get drunk with everybody so like that's one of my favorite things about halloween um that i'm hoping to continue and like i was hoping to do mad men this year and i'm really like upset that that didn't work because i feel like a 60s 70s party would have been so fun all right i i'm gonna say i'm actually upset that you told me that because i would have been incredibly into that because i fucking loved that show well we listen we still have 2021 it's still that's, possible that's true that's true but so i guess it, like on the same lines of like tv shows movies like everybody has movies that they watch around this time of year so people are trying to get away from the election people want to escape the news for a little bit what should they watch like erica what's one of your go to Halloween movies? I think I like genres. So one of my favorite Halloween movies is Don't Look Under the Bed. It's a decom. And it's not like, you know, it's not scary, scary, but there's, I think, especially with the older decoms, there's a lot of wit in the jokes. Um, and it like, I can't believe that this was marketed to children with jokes that go way beyond children's heads. As an adult, they're just fun to watch. Um, but when it comes to horror movies, I am, and this sounds so like snobby, but I am a horror movie like asshole. I'm very partial to Japanese horror because the Japanese are so open to it that it's like, it truly is like a deeper level of horror. Religious horror, I'm like not that pressed about. Like, I am the demon, so can't let it in. You know, whether that be The Grudge or The Ring, which all were based off of, um, they're essentially remakes of Japanese movies, but specifically the Ringo series is very hefty. Um, But I love those movies. They're super scary, super dark. Um, And I also like French horror because the French don't like happy endings. And it's just like my favorite thing about them. Um, So... In general, those are that's what I tend to lean towards. But again, I'm a, a horror movie asshole. I was going to say you get pretty niche. the The Grudge was yeah. one of the first scary movies I ever saw, and I could not sleep for days after I saw that movie. It oh just had God. that like it settled inside you. There, I think they're so good. I go real niche. I like that. What about you, Andrew, if you're not super into Halloween, if there's horror movies or Halloween-inspired movies that you're into? I am a big 
movie buff. I mean, part of it is is the job I do, right? Um, and I I love movies. I was never super into the really hardcore horror films, um, especially not like the big franchises like Friday the 13th, the slasher franchises, except for one. Um, I do watch the original Halloween movie, which is one of the all-time greatest horror films ever created. Um, so I do like watching that because it's on every year uh, at this time of year. And it's just so fucking good. And and zombie films. I love zombie films so much. Um, and some of the funnier zombie films, like the Evil Dead series, like those are always classics. I grew up watching those with um, some of my buddies. And there's kind of a nostalgia factor to watching those. It's so funny. I've never actually watched the Halloween movies. Like I've seen them because they're always on. But like I've never actually seen them. They've inspired so much of what I watch, though. I know only the first one is good. The rest is that's like one of those franchises where, you know, they've made like fucking 26 of them and, you know, half of them are made for too. I know. And they restart it and they reboot it. But that first one is just so good. It's low budget. And I think that's where a lot of horror films really shine is when you find those low budget ones that are really like stripped down. And then sort of like Erica, I, I do like finding some of the more niche ones, like the original uh, Let the Right One In, like the vampire movie. That one is really good. The American remake is not great. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not great. Like It Follows, that was a great kind of indie, mm-hmm. yeah, indie film. Yeah, that was nuts. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. I was never really a big like like religious horror film fan, maybe also because just growing up with it, like I, I just... I don't know. I just wasn't into it. All the, and that seems to be the predominantly like American horror films are either like the really tiresome slasher genre where there's a few good ones and then the rest is like you've seen one, you've seen them all. And then the rest is all like religious horror films, you know, demon possession and stuff, which I guess figures based on, you know, who we are as Americans. That does make sense. I was going to say, like, I feel like the demon possession movies are like ones that I love. Like I thrive. I used to (laughs) rewatch the exorcism of Emily Rose, like hours on end. Like I would literally watch it like two or three times in a row just because it was like so fucked. Like, and I don't know, there was something like interesting about that blend of religion, but I was really close to it. I wonder if that's like why I did like it versus why you guys maybe had more of an aversion to it. But Sabrina, what about you? What are some of your favorite um, spooky season movies? Okay. I feel like a total basic bitch because my movies are like the craft and practical magic and hocus pocus. Like I, I don't care. I mean, I used to really love scary movies. Um, I don't know. I've just had less of an interest in them lately. I guess real life is scarier than movies at this point. <laughs> Maybe that's why. But when it comes to fall and uh, leading up to Halloween, I just like the classics and, you know, the humorous scary movies that aren't really scary. They're just fun. I mean, hocus pocus has to be on everybody's list, right? Right. Yeah, that is definitely one of my favorites, too. I'm like, I feel like I can go either way. It truly depends on my mood. Like slasher wise, I'm going scream and I'm going saw like all the way through to the end. Like, like the scream series is my absolute favorite. And they don't even I mean, that's not even necessarily Halloween inspired always, but um, they just it just is such an iconic movie, the first one, you know, and again, the, I, I still think that all four are good, but, um, and we're also getting Scream 5 soon, which is insane. 
Like I, I can go that way. In high school, I used to write my own saw novels. Where what? Was dark. <laughs> I don't know that I've shared this on this podcast before, but like, I used to literally write horror stories of how my friends would like get tortured and stuff, and they oh got like, they got published in the school paper. Like they were good, but also like what? They would they would lock you up for that today. A hundred percent. Like 2006, it was fine because the movies were popular. But like anything beyond that, if you were a kid who was going to do that now, you would absolutely be locked up. But that's why I say like on the other side, like I haven't watched the Saw movies in a long time. But like uh, I can still probably say all of them from memory, especially the second one, because it's the drama of having everybody in the same house and everything's happening to them and everybody has their own room where they have to pass their test. And something about that was just always like sick and twisted of overcoming obstacles. Um, but then like my favorite movies are like oh, the Halloween town, Disney channel, original movies. <laughs> like, I fucking love that white shit. <laughs> it just is. I think so. I, and again, this is sounds super elitist, but one of my favorite things about horror movies is they always reveal this like greater truth or even like mm-hmm. around witchcraft specifically um, is all very women driven. Like if you look at if you really watch Halloween Town, it is the women of the Cromwell line that really hold the power. Um, there's no mention, I guess there's the brother, but he's like the babbling idiot in the series. So, or he's not the babbling idiot. He's just a fucking dick. And maybe the reason why I like horror so much is because there's a little bit of, it takes these like concepts that really do affect us daily and it makes them so sensationalized and so just like out of this world that it makes it like entertainment again. In the early 2000s, um, the 28 Days and the 28 Week Later movies came out. And if you look at it, it's about, in most of it, you see like all these roads are empty and it's essentially the government abandoning its people or the government um, abusing its people. Same with Resident Evil. Um, And it's because in the 2000s, there's a lot of mistrust within the government, um, both domestically and internationally. So I don't know. I I think it's so cool that we could take these very real concepts and apply it to such unreal scenarios. And that's why I get a fucking lady boner for horror movies. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree with you. That's one of the strong points of horror, and I think that's why horror is really good or it's really bad. Mm-hmm. There really isn't much middle ground with horror movies, and I think that the greatest horror films are ones that have that social commentary wrapped up in them, but you can't really see it. You can sit down and you can enjoy it for a fun, violent piece of entertainment, but it, you know, even starting with Night of the Living Dead, which is like one of the originals, mm-hmm. like that was all about American society in the 1960s. And of course, it's just a zombie movie if you just look at it on the surface. But, you know, deep down, it's more than that. And you mentioned one of my favorite films, Erica, I've probably seen 28 Days Later, I don't know, 10 times. I fucking love that movie. And it's so well put together for a movie, but it also has all of that social commentary wrapped up into it that subliminally makes it just so relatable. Especially now with fucking COVID. And it's crazy because they didn't make that movie with 
I mean, who knows? Maybe let's add that to the conspiracy theory batch that this has all been planned. And if we just watched early 2000s horror, we could figure out the answers to everything. We should be fucking tight. And I probably would get a Nobel Peace Prize. But uh, <laughs> I think if you went back and you watched Saw 2, the like eight characters there that experienced some level of torture, I think that you could relate every single one of those characters to a member of the Trump cabinet. I'm positive. The, the, the girl who was, the girl who was um, guilty of the embezzling. I mean, this might only have been in an extended scene, so I won't get like too geeky on this podcast, but the girl who was, who was part of the embezzling, she had to slit her wrists in order to get a key to unlock it and yeah. get out of it. Like, tell me that's not fucking Jared Kushner. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I think we are going to get, like, in the next four or five years, we're going to get some bomb-ass horror films yeah. coming oh, out no. of the yeah. Trump presidency. I mean, even, and you know, COVID. like, and, and COVID. But you think about it, like, like some, there was sort of like a, you know, the early 2000s were great for horror films, and then the, the 2010s were not so great. There really wasn't, I mean, there were some good movies, but they didn't have that social commentary behind them. Just in the last couple of years, we've been we've been getting that. I mean, Get Out was like one of the best movies of the last three years. Yeah. We're going to be seeing more of that. So I'm excited for that, at least for movies. If nothing else, you know, the world has gone to shit and we've destroyed everything. But at least we're going to get some good movies out of it. <laughs> I'm just disappointed that like Hollywood already did. It's like apocalypse thing. Like we got 2012. We got yep. Day After Tomorrow. Right. Girl, it's 2020. What are we getting now? Like, 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 what is going to inspire this like a new apocalypse? Right? Like, when are the real global warming movies going to happen, or is it just going to happen directly in front of us? I was going to say it's it's almost to the point where they're just like in. I think a good one. I wouldn't say it's horror horror, but um, Snowpiercer was a good one, and it kind of mm-hmm. shows us on the in like Chris Evans. So good. Spoiler alert, <laughs> eat that fucking baby, which is not the first <laughs> time that I've been eating babies. Trust me. Um, he was so fucking sexy. I was like, ooh. But um, it, it was a huge social, there's so much social commentary, and it really looks at things on the other side of, um, you know, this cataclysmic event where like we tried to reverse global warming you know there's a horror movie there's something within that sphere for everything which is why I tell people like it's okay like you don't have if you are like my roommate god bless her is a little bitch and gets scared easily and you know she started to watch horror movies but you know she still gets scared but there's something in the genre for everything and um, like I know Stigmata came out in the early 2000s, wasn't a great movie. It was an absolute hit with the Catholics. And then like they finished it and they were like, oh, wait, never mind. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, they were uh, that emoji with the two eyes and the lips. And the <laughs> That's exactly what they look like. Like, oh, but it's, it's one of those things where there's something for everyone. And I think, um, you know. Night of the Living Dead was one of those movies where, again, spoiler, the character who survives is a black man. And in that final scene, he walks out, he's 
kind of gone through everything. He's come out on top and he gets shot down by cops, assuming he's a zombie. Um, And how crazy is that, that this predates all of this social media, access to phone cameras, police brutality being recognized on a national level. But in this final scene, it's not the zombies that take everyone out, the, the last ones to pick off the last human are our police force. Um, so I, I truly think that if you like, if you want to know how society is doing at any point in time, like find a horror movie and it will very mm-hmm. almost, it'll, it never explicitly tells you, but if you go into this thinking, Oh, there might be a deeper meaning, you'll certainly find it. And if not, I don't know, maybe you're fucking stupid and you should look it up or please call me. Because I love talking about this shit so much. I could go on for days. (laughs) Speaking of that type of like real world application process, I'm going to switch our questions around a little bit. So the question is going to be, who would you rather spend Halloween with (laughs) and why? Donald Trump or Joe Biden? And you can't just say Joe Biden because, you know, we all think that he would be more enjoyable. I'm talking about (laughs) the interesting Halloween party the most fabulous guests I'm talking like what's going to happen that these two people are doing on Halloween that you're going to say, yeah, I'm going to spend time with that person. So I can, I can go first. (laughs) I think that I would have to spend time with Donald Trump on Halloween because if Melania decorates their penthouse apartment in New York, the same way that she (laughs) terrifyingly decorates the White House. You know that Halloween party is absolutely insane. This was Handmaid's Tale Christmas. You can only imagine what Handmaid's Tale Halloween is going to look like. I want to hang out on Halloween only with Amy Coney Barrett, with Melania Trump, with Tiffany Trump and her LGB uh, allyship that she is showing on Twitter these days, uh, specifically for getting the tea. I want to see what those people do on the spookiest day of the year, because that will set me up to know what they do on every other day of the year, because they're the spookiest people to me. So I'm going to say Trump. I would rather spend Halloween with him, although it would be great to um, hand out uh, uh, candy to the local trick-or-treaters in Jill and Joe Biden's neighborhood. <laughs> I'll go. Um, I would choose Biden because um, based off of what I read on the Internet, he will be enjoying a feast of babies. Oh, to maintain eternal youth that none of us have fucking seen because <laughs> I'm like, we've seen the liver spots, we've seen the hairline, which I will say, God bless Joe Biden, but that hairline has been fading since like he started in politics. But um, yeah, I, I would also love to see what the fuck Jill Biden is up to. I feel like she'd be super fun about Halloween. Um, in all seriousness, I don't think they're going to be eating babies, but if they are, and like I'm the one who exposes that, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, yeah, I was at his party, and um, it was great. They had a nice little uh, crew de tot, and uh, they had babies. <laughs> so, so we have Paul wanting to hang with Amy Coney Barrett the Grim Reaper herself and Erica wanting to hang out with 
the babies that Amy Coney Barrett is trying to protect. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know where we go from here, but I would have to say, I would have to say Biden too, because I want to see that ritual. Cause you know, whatever, whatever he does in the shadows to like summon the lizard people or the aliens, whoever is controlling the Illuminati and the new world order, like, you know, they're drawing pentagrams with the baby blood <laughs> and they're lighting candles and they're chanting and they're in robes. Like, I, I need to see that. I'm all about that. <laughs> so in case anyone didn't catch on, this is now a QAnon podcast. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no, and Sabrina, Sabrina has to be the last one. Oh, to my go. God. I don't know how to follow up from this shit. I just want the most normal Halloween that has ever happened before. Um yeah, I don't. I fucking just want to hang out candy to little kids that are dressed up, knocking on my door, and they look super cute. So whatever gets me that, I feel like that would be Biden. Um, yeah, and I'm you know Biden will probably take a nap by ten thirty, eleven o'clock because he'll be exhausted. So you know it'll just be me and and Jill hanging out, handing out candy, having wine with Jill. I think having that wine, like that. yeah. That would be awesome. I just want the most normal, non-conspiracy, flooded Halloween. Yeah. I, I don't want to learn. I don't want to learn that the kids that Donald Trump is going to hand candy to on the White House lawn on Halloween. I don't want to learn that those kids are cyborgs. I don't want to learn that those kids are the children of Russian agents. I don't want to learn that he gave those children COVID. I don't want to learn about any of this stuff. So if we could just have... Donald Trump stay in the basement, the bunker of the White House on Halloween, maybe we would all be a little bit better off. But he's going to rear his ugly head and he already looks like a pumpkin. So (laughs) I feel like realistically, Donald Trump just wants to take a family size, no, a party size bag of plain Lay's and 16 like 16 liters of diet coke enjoys and just enjoy himself i don't think he wants to be president to be quite honest i think he just wants to have a he wants to live in a home where there are people who live to bring him his snacks and that is it and that is why i think that donald trump is a toddler wearing a man suit and that has been his costume for like four years now so we've now had trump university we've had the trump book we've had the trump show and now this is just trump plantation is what you're asking for (laughs) just just just, so the listeners understand we're on facetime and erica just took a huge swig of water as paul said that and she may actually be dead right now Oh my god! <laughs> so I was gonna listen to this podcast and be like, "Look, that Told you. podcast admitted that Joe Biden admitted it." Yeah. See, wouldn't that be hilarious if the podcast goes viral because some QAnon people pick it up? <laughs> it's Paul Warren is a Q truther. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to post this on Eight Chan after we're done with this. <laughs> Okay. All right. And that was the disaster that you've been waiting for. That was (laughs) unpacking spooky season. So this is the last time that we will give you action items 
before the election. This is the last time that you will hear this on this podcast. And if you have made it this far, number one, congratulations. Um, but number two, uh, I think that this is important. I think that this is momentous. I think that, you know, if you've been following any of us on Instagram, you know, this entire time, if you've seen any of our posts, um, you know how strongly we feel about getting active and staying active. So I just want to go around the horn to everybody and say in one or two sentences, we're probably going to hit four or five, but what do you want um, the people who are still listening to do from now until election day? There will be a total of six days for them to do it. So, Andrew, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to vote early. I have my ballot. I requested a mail-in ballot. Um, I was having all the anxiety everyone else was having about whether or not it was going to come in time. It just said pending for the longest time. Finally, it shows up. Um, so I'm going to fill that out, and I'm going to take it to the government building here in Quakertown, and I'm going to drop it off. Um, in the official drop off and not the fake ones that the Republicans are setting up in who knows where. Other than that, I'm going to just keep donating. Um, you know, I donated to common cause the other day. Um, also just to extract more money from Paul's bank account because he said <laughs> he was going to give money for every donation. So, um, I'm just trying to make him poor, but that's what I'm up to. Great. Thanks. Thrilled about that. <laughs> Sabrina, what about you? I'm going to vote early as well. My ballot is a little bit cumbersome. Um, there's a lot of judges. Uh, so like I said earlier, I'm all policy based. I made a spreadsheet and I go down the list and I look at who is closest to the policies that I want. Um, and then I say, that's what I'm going to vote for. I write it down on a piece of paper and then I go to my polling station and that's who I pick. So um, I actually took that little tidbit from um, Jenna, who is Pam on The Office, because she does the same thing. Uh, she she shared this on Instagram. I don't know if anyone saw this, but she put this on her stories. That that's how she does all the propositions that are on her ballot in California. So I did the exact same thing, but for candidates. That's awesome. I love that. Erica, what about you? Um, You've been I... doing this shit a long time. <laughs> I am just going to make sure that I have everything I need um, to vote in person or um, for those of you who are doing mail-in, um, watch tutorials, go look at all the resources you have available and just ensure that my vote counts and also check in on my friends who are nowhere voting and make sure that they have everything they need to be prepared to vote um, without running into any issues on November 3rd or I recommend going early because the election ends on November 3rd. It is not on November 3rd. I think that's a perfect point. This is election month. This is the election period. And this is the last day that everybody can vote is that November 3rd. Um, my final action items are don't forget what is at stake and don't forget to tell everybody about it. And I don't say this to fear monger. I don't say this to add any more anxiety to your plate than there already is, but we need to think about what the last four years, but even specifically what the last 10 months have been this year of 2020. There's so many memes about it, but it is not a joke. <laughs> This has been one of the hardest years I think that any of us will face in our lifetime, hopefully that we will face in our lifetime, because 
I really need it to get better. But when you think about the fact that we were threatened with World War III in January, the coronavirus was creeping up on us in February. And then in March, everything went to shit and we weren't allowed to hug people. We weren't allowed to touch people. We weren't allowed to live our life a normal way. And rather than try to get it under control, we took the opposite approach. Our administration and many people in this country took the opposite approach. This was a president that has allowed a pandemic to kill 220,000 Americans and potentially hundreds of thousands more. Then in June, in June, we saw George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement just destroy our social media pages. It was all we could think about. It was all we could breathe and, and feel. And that didn't do anything to shift the polls just yet. We made progress in policing in many districts, but it didn't do anything to shift the polls just yet. And then since then, after that sort of summer of, I would say, protest and counter protest, we then had debates and we had conventions and we had Trump testing positive for COVID-19. We had Trump's taxes getting released. We had conflicts with China. We had conflicts in Armenia and Azerbaijan. We've had issues um, all over the world. And so when you're thinking about this election and you're talking to people about it, talk to them about the last 10 months. Talk to them about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's been like the cap of this entire thing. We just cannot allow ourselves to be complacent, even in these last days, because if we get complacent, we know what happens. We know what happens to our healthcare. We know what happens to the queer community. We know what happens to the BIPOC community. We know all of what is at risk from our foreign policy all the way down to our small businesses. And so we need to do everything we can to remind everybody about the seriousness of this election. So if you made it this far in this podcast, <laughs> great. Um just fucking vote and get your friends to vote because that is quite literally all we have at this point. We have been pulled and pushed in every direction. And this has been one of the hardest years in our life, but we can start getting things back on track with a candidate who may not be your favorite candidate, but he is certainly the only candidate. So that's my final action step. I guess just don't let us down off my soapbox. Thank you guys so much for joining the podcast. This has been another episode of Let's Unpack That. I hope uh, that everybody found this beneficial, enjoyable, and a fun deviation from what we normally do. So um, Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us. We would of course love to have you back. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Yeah. And, Andrew and, and therapy. Erica, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, that is a compliment. Um, and Andrew and Erica, thank you guys for joining as always. You're welcome. As good as always. <laughs> and Kirk, if you listened, fuck you. <laughs> Who's Kirk? Oh. Well, thank you, everyone. We look forward to our next episode where we hopefully have some positive news about the election. I feel like I am hitting the sign-off button with just immense anxiety. <laughs> Talk to you all soon.